Welcome to Making the Shift, where we use Jesus' life as a model for cultivating disciple-making movements rather than maintaining ministry. We join with other leaders from around the world to explore practical ways you can make the shift today. Thank you for joining us for Episode 5. In this episode, you'll hear from Dr. Dan Spader, founder of Sun Life Ministries and Concentric, previously Global Youth Initiative, and a prolific author of many books. Bill and Dan share the development of their partnership and how this was key in setting the foundation for Shift M2M. We think you'll really enjoy the lively and engaging way Dan shares the ups and downs of his journey while working with church and ministry leaders over his vast career. Follow us so you can join in on all of the great conversations coming up as Bill connects with many leaders from around the world, exploring what they have learned from Jesus' life about making the shift. Well, welcome back, and I really am so pleased in this session of Making the Shift to be able to be joined by my dear friend of many, many years, Dan Spader. Dan and I go way back, just after Noah. Back to the ark, the dry land. That's right, back to the <laughs> ark. And it seems like that, but what a rich journey it's been. And uh, our partnership, both working with other leaders internationally as well as uh, investing in each other's own organisations, it's just been rich. And Dan, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your family, your current role, and and just how you came to Christ personally? What's your story? Yeah, Bill, it's a fascinating story. I grew up in a large farm family, I say, because there are 16 kids in that farm. I'm number 15 of the 16, and all my brothers and sisters, except for the oldest two, begin with the letter D. So I'm Dan. And I always say say they saved the best for last. So I'm number 15 (laughs) of the 16. But anyway, grew up in a large farm family in the Midwestern part of the United States. Needless to say, a Catholic family, a religious family, mm-hmm. but came to Christ while at engineering school through a miracle, literally. And to my knowledge, I was the very first in my family to come to Christ personally. And it was through the ministry of Crew, which uh-huh. had just started their first retreat in the South Dakota, where I lived. And there's no staff. There are a couple of young guys. This was a movement of God right the early days of crew, and and they asked Bill Bright if they could send some staff, and they said, we have no staff to send, so they sent their training manuals. And uh, (laughs) they literally sent the manuals, and some at this engineering school, some guys figured out how to do a retreat. And at that retreat, my roommate came to Christ, came back. I saw his life transformed. His name was Dan. Also, I said, what happened to you? And he said, you really want to know? And I said, yes. And he was so nervous, he pulled out of four laws out of the back of his pocket. He'd been a Christian about a week and read the <laughs> thing to me. And he was shaking so much because he was so nervous to share this with his roommate. Uh, I had to hold the booklet. <laughs> he was so nervous as he read it to me. But December 17, 1970, 9.43 p.m., after a keg party in a fraternity house, we got down on our knees and I trusted Christ. And we hit the ground running and my world was changed. So, Wow, that's an amazing story. And I particularly like the story that uh, if, if you can't send a man, you just send a manual. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure that, <laughs> that is a miracle that, that yeah. it happened from that beginning. Yeah. Well, so you, you, you obviously hit the ground running as a believer. Yeah. What went off in your head and what were the major steps that led you forward? 
Well, we went two weeks later. Believe it or not, I'd never received money from a Catholic priest. He gave me money to go to Christmas conference in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And so we took a bus all the way from South Dakota, Chicago, 700 miles in a school bus wow. uh, with about 20 kids on our campus. We were the brand new Christians. Went to this conference, heard Bill Bright, Josh McDowell speak, come help change the world. Yeah, uh, They sent me to the airport, O'Hare Airport, to share the gospel. And I loved it how the story, the first guy I went and shared with was at the University of Chicago working on his PhD in philosophy of religion. <laughs> he's a good, a nice, soft target I, to talk to. My, <laughs> Waiting he, for a flight, too. He, he chewed me up and spit me out. I said, God, I am not good at this. I can, I don't even know what I'm doing. But I said, I'll try one more time. And I remember it. I circled a guy at the airport, American Airlines baggage claim. I still remember it where it was. Circled him for about five minutes. A businessman <laughs> had sat down, approached him, with, got up the courage to approach him. And I sat down and said, could I take an interview with you? I was a group of students taking an interview. And he says, you know, I just came from Philadelphia. I was yeah. talking to two college students there. He pulled the four laws out of his pocket. <laughs> Said they got through law two. I've been thinking the whole way. How do I come to know God personally? You are kidding me. me. That's amazing. I started at law one, read the whole booklet because that's what I was trained to do. I'd be a brand new Christian and led him to Christ. And I just hit the ground running. We went up and down a fraternity house after that and prayed the prayer with about 10 guys. And since we've been Christians two weeks longer than everybody else, we led the Bible studies. You were the experts, yeah. We were the experts. Isn't that amazing? I've often said, never underestimate the graciousness of God, the trainer, when someone's stepping out in faith, he just seems to help them land those first few things. They land well and they get bitten by this bug of mission and they're in. (laughs) It's fantastic. What were the next steps? What was formative for you in terms of, you know, how did you meet your delightful wife, Char, and what was the kind of trajectory of Vader's? I went to Summer Project in Ocean City, New Jersey, go out every day. They, the crew, staff would send us out witnessing. I'd come back. The staff would meet me at the door because I had so many questions. I was so new in my faith. I didn't know the Bible. I just knew my life had been changed. I'd come back after talking to people and tell them my experience, and then I had all my questions, and I'd go out the next day. We did that all summer, came back from that summer conference, and knew I needed to get more Bible. Literally, I this is always funny, Bill. I had a pastor ask me in the Catholic Church, or a priest, if I'd come and share my testimony. Yeah. And I looked up what a testimony was, so I knew what that was. And then he said, would you use some scripture from the Old Testament? (laughs) <laughs> and I paused and said, well, I, I'll, I'll try, but I just have a new Bible. I don't have an old one. <laughs> and that literally was the extent of my knowledge about the Scripture. So I soon realized I need to get some Bible training. And again, through a whole series of miracles, ended up going to Moody Bible Institute, downtown Chicago, hitchhiked there after the summer project. And that set me on a trajectory of going to Bible school, then off to seminary, and doing ministry at the same time, doing youth ministry at the time. During that time, right after that, met my beautiful wife, Char, and we've been married now 41 years, coming up next week. Three daughters, one's on staff with crew, two of the daughters married best friends, and Mm -hmm. they're planting a church together in San Diego. 
So I have eight grandkids, three daughters, Wonderful. two sons-in-law. So God's been good. God's been very good. Indeed. What questions were driving in your mind as someone who obviously had been impacted, a new believer, essentially, who'd been impacted with the life-transforming impact of the gospel, the Holy Spirit had got a hold of your life. Yeah. You were under the illusion that all believers were about disciple-making because that's what Jesus was doing. What were some of the questions that you were asking at Moody? And what was the sort of the formative thing that really shaped your trajectory and your direction in the ministry ahead? I was discipled early on by uh, some great, they, they weren't even staffed with crew, but they had a, a real passion for ministry in the basics, like how to walk in the spirit, how to deal with your sins. I mean, a, a transferable concepts we study, how to experience yeah. God's love and forgiveness. That was so critical for me as a new Christ follower. Go off to Moody, and I saw all these students that grew up in Christian homes, mm -hmm. and the professors who knew the Bible inside out and upside down, but you wondered about their heart for evangelism. I remember sitting in a class of a great professor. I could give you his name, godly man, great teacher. But he one day I remember making almost a joke about Catholics, all the crazy things they would do to try to earn their way to heaven. He was teaching mm. church history, like Catholics who'd sit on the church steeple for 10 days, hopefully to gain reward to get to heaven. And the class laughed. And I remember mm. sitting there and I wept mm. and I, I couldn't understand why would they laugh about something as tragic as that? Because I said, they just don't know any better. Mm. And that, that was my life. And I, we found a school about two blocks from Moody and I just had to share my faith every day. And, and I'd always told the story of Dale Moody, his prayer was to share the gospel with one person a day. And yeah. I said, God, by your grace, I want to do that. And so I started going to this school next to us every day. And then I set the goal of trying to find one person a day that would pray and accept mm -hmm. Christ. And now I didn't understand discipling at this time, but I, I had a heart for evangelism. And then I started taking teams of students with me because nobody ever shared their faith. And so we would sometimes have 20, 30, 40, 50 students going down to this secular campus every day to witness and to share the gospel. <laughs> And that led me into leading these trips to Christmas projects down to beaches of, in Florida to share the gospel, because I found out nobody was really doing yeah. it. It's Bible school. Now, I mean, the heart was there, but they had no background in it. In our youth ministry, when I started working as a youth pastor, that's the first thing I do, take the kids out and let's go sharing. I just yeah. assumed everybody did that in church. I wish. Yeah, I wish. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it really was a work of God. That's all I can say. It's nothing me. It was. God was doing an incredible work at that yeah. time. And I just assumed this was normal. Isn't that so much what we try to teach as we work together with leaders? It is about structuring a disciple-making environment so the new normal is the normal for the new believers, rather than that new believers learn the passive, go deep, but don't get active kind of way of following Jesus, which so often is the result of just people who are multi-generation churchgoers. But we want new believers to learn, you know what? As you came to know Jesus, others can come to know Jesus. Yeah. And there's people who are waiting to know Jesus and they're amongst your friends. Yeah. So find them. 
and it's that kind of new normal. And you just you just assumed that that was what, well, this is what Christians must do because that's what I experienced. I love that verse, Philemon, verse 6. And there's different ways to translate it, but I think it's a new international. It says, I pray that you're active in the sharing of your faith so that you come to a full understanding of all mm. the good things you have in Christ Jesus. And again, I wish I was evangelistic now as I was in those early days. That's not <laughs> one of my goals as I move in toward the semi-retiring, whatever that looks like. But I, I want to go back to that daily passion of finding people to share my faith yeah. with. For the last 30 years, 40 years, I spent most all my time with Christ followers or leaders. But that was so beautiful because it's when you give away your mm. faith, you really gain your faith. And as I was sharing my faith early on, I learned so much. I think spirit taught right at that spot. That's beautiful. Now, here we have a young youth pastor who's suddenly learning that there is an old and a new testament. And there yes. is <laughs> there is there is a whole lot of stuff that is to be learned about God, but birthed out of a missional moment where somebody who was a new believer shared with you. And then that's just at the core of things, the mission, making disciples who make disciples is at the center of things. And that's giving you the compass bearing. And then you're at college there at Moody and you have this youth group that's developing and more people becoming believers. And you've got this driving question, no doubt, like, what do I do with these kids? (laughs) What do I, how does discipling happen? How does disciple making happen? What was the insight that God gave you? And how did that then shape that next part of your journey? Yeah. And Bill, that's a, again, an interesting story. The first two years as a youth pastor, I had no idea what the church was about. I had no idea what a youth group would be about. I was never in one, except what I'd experienced at engineering school as a new Christ follower. So I just mm-hmm. tried to do that with the kids in the youth group. But I soon began to realize that there's a different dynamic in a church, a different dynamic with church kids. Mm-hmm. And I also began to realize that it's not just all about evangelism. It was about making disciples who could reproduce. And I was in a, a class in a gospel, John, probably my second semester at Moody. And a prof that I had, Stan Gundry, he just compiled a harmony of the Gospels, the Thomas Gundry harmony, which we love to use. I think one of the better ones. But in class, he made a statement that changed my life. He literally mm-hmm. said, you know, there's a good chance that some of Christ's initial disciples could have been teenagers when Jesus began to work with them. And I don't remember <laughs> the other thing. He, he said, I, I heard that and I said, wow, I only knew enough about the Bible to know Jesus was about 30. And, yeah. and when you're 20 years old, he was an old guy. <laughs> and, right. and I figured the disciples were a bunch of old guys, and I was doing youth work. And all of a sudden, it changed my picture of Jesus. I rushed to the prof afterward, and I said, prof, is that really true? Some of the disciples could have been teenagers? Because I'm a youth pastor. I'm working with teenagers. And they said, yeah, John might have been 16, 17. The other disciples yeah. were late teens, early 20s. And my question now, Wow. What did Jesus do with his youth group? <laughs> and the yeah. prof chuckled, and then he pulled out his brand new harmony that he had just compiled, just came off the press. And he says, you got to go get a harmony and just study. What did Jesus do the first year? What did he do second year? What did he do third year? What did he do fourth year? And where did he go? What did he say? What did he not do? Why did mm-hmm. he not do this the first year? Why did he go here? Study the geography. 
And I went down to the bookstore and bought that first harmony of the gospel. And I began to spend two to three days every month just, I go away with my Bible mm-hmm. and my harmony. And I'm in engineering by background. I like to think process and structure. And so I began to outline the life of Christ. And I began to mm-hmm. outline what he taught and where he went and what he said. And why did he say this? And why did he not say this? And I, yeah. I began to realize things about Jesus I had no idea were true. Mm. You know, simple things like only two miracles in the first two and a half years that are recorded. That Jesus did not choose the 12 until two and a half years into it. That was my doctoral dissertation because it rocked my world so much. Or that Jesus ministered primarily in the Judean wilderness area during the first 18 months. And I began to get a whole new understanding of Jesus. We find this so often when people have completed seminary, been ministering for so many years, and they go on this journey. We describe it in shift as saying, you know, we're inviting you to come on a slow walk back through the life of Jesus to discover how he went from doing ministry to launching a movement. Yes, And it's this idea of a slow walk back through it because it's so familiar for pastors and teachers of the word. It's just over familiar. Yes, And we break it up into little bite-sized chunks, but out of each of the bite-sized chunks, you don't get the trajectory of what's going on. And so, yeah, really beautiful. Now, I also know, Dan, on Inside Information, that first harmony you purchased out of the bookshop, there was a story that went with that. (laughs) Yes, yes, I still have it. I carry it with me. It's in shreds. It's taped together. But yeah, right on page 67, and I love to tell this story. I went into the bookstore at Moody. The harmonies were like 20 bucks in those days. And that was a lot of money. That was for Bible school students. That's about all the money I had. I just about walked out of the bookstore and said, I just can't afford that right now. I was flipping through this one on the shelf, and right on page 67 was a squash fly. And so (laughs) to this day, when I go do training, I show that squash fly and say, Look, he's 30 years later, he's still there. And I went to the bookstore owner and I showed him the fly. And I said, sir, look, you can't charge full price for this. That page is ruined. And he said, you're right. 50% off. I said, I'll take it. <laughs> and that's so a $10 I, fly. Huh? That's a $10 fly. So every time I go into a Christian bookstore, I carry a jar of flies with me at work. No, no. no. But anyway, I, you know, I told that story hundreds of times. And Bill, you've heard me tell that. And yeah. I love to tell, but I'm coming up on 50 years now walking with the Lord. And I am convinced in the sovereignty of God, he put mm-hmm. that fly there for me. <laughs> That's right. I am, because I don't think I would have bought that harmony. I can and just that- see that dispatch coming through with the angel depot, you know, chicka, 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 yeah. chicka, chicka. what? Put a fly? Page 67? <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I'm convinced God put it there because that caused me to buy that harmony. And I began to analyze with my engineering background. The life of Christ. Not only his message, and this is what I find, Bill, and you and I say this a lot, 95% of the books are about the message of Jesus. And we know the message, but we don't know the model of his methods. Yeah. How did he create this movement of multiplying disciples? Not only what did he say, but how did he understand the first century church really understood the life of Jesus because they walked with him. We don't. We've lost that. We lost what he did the first year. We lost what he did the second year. 
third year, we've lost an understanding of how he built a movement. Because he said 40 times, do what I've done, walk as I walk, follow the pattern I gave you. It's often one of the questions that I'll come back with people when they'll sometimes say, well, why focus on a chronology when we haven't been given a chronology specifically? And my comeback is, well, when these documents were written, the chronology was assumed. <laughs> Everybody, yeah. Everyone knew the history. It was not even 50 years beyond it. What everybody had no doubt about was the chronology of Jesus because this was yeah. recent yeah. history. Yeah. And those who experienced it were still the ones teaching it. And so when the documents were written, they had more of a theological perspective to them than a historical yeah. Um, even though they, they're in keeping with both. You're right there. That was understood. We've lost it. I think the other thing is they clearly understood his humanity. Yeah. They had yeah. no doubt about that he was fully human. He wept. He got tired. He struggled. That he was man as God intended man to be. But yeah. we have kind of turned it upside down, and we've overemphasized the deity of Christ at the expense of the humanity of Christ. And he was mm -hmm. fully God and fully man. And if you lose the true humanity of Jesus, you begin to say, well, he did what he did because he was God and I'm not. Yeah. And I, and I, I can't do what Jesus did because he was God and I'm not. And that's a totally faulty theological understanding of the full humanity of Jesus. Yeah, it really has implications. It's like that yeah. the pendulum started way out here. Jesus is just man. Yes, and even his disciples, even his family, he's a godly man. And then it was after the progression through his life and those dawning moments of revelation, and perhaps particularly with the death, burial, resurrection, suddenly right. the realization he is more than man. He's more than a godly man. He is the God man. Yes. And suddenly the pendulum is kind of got both his yes. humanity and his deity and then over history, the arguments were, but is he more than man? So then the whole theological emphasis pushes out to his deity yeah. and that gets emphasized. And suddenly there's a pendulum way out here. So now he's fully God, but how much man is he? Yeah. And we've got to even those up both, fully yeah. God, fully man. And you know some of my story, Bill, and this could be a fun just thing to hold deal with in some podcasts, but the humanity of Christ was a game changer in my discipling. There's a book by Gerald Hawthorne. It, the whole book the argues for the, the presence, power and the presence, argues yeah. for everything Jesus did when he walked on this earth, he did through the power of the Holy Spirit, led by the Spirit, conceived by the Spirit, did miracles by the Spirit, mm -hmm. raised by the Spirit, anointed by the Spirit. Everything he did, he, even though he was God and had the God card, he yeah. did what he did through the power of the Holy Spirit, not by using his God card. Satan tempted him, if you're God, because Satan knew that if he could get Jesus to use the God card, then he yeah. wouldn't be fully man. And Jesus resisted it. This is the whole argument of Hebrews 2 and 5. And yeah. so everything Jesus did, he did perfectly through the power of the Holy Spirit, word, and prayer. And therefore... Yeah. To the extent that we walk as Jesus walked, we can do what Jesus did. And for me, that was a game changer because yeah. I began to believe when I understood that, I believe that my disciples 
could go and turn the world upside down, even if they were unlearned, ignorant tax collectors and fishermen. If they have the Holy Spirit, they understand the word and they have a prayerful lifestyle like Jesus. It's not about who we are. It's who we're allowing to work through us. Yeah. Let's go back in time a little. I remember it was back in the early 80s, might have been 84, 85, when I'd been four years in because I started youth ministry in 1979 and I'd been working similar stories yourself, had been influenced and impacted by Power to Change or back then called Campus Crusade in Australia, had been impacted by the Ministry of the Spirit, had started doing ministry with a commission to do disciple making with youth didn't have any models really to follow and was asking that question, well, what did Jesus do? We got to a point where we were saying, well, we need a little more information. Who else is doing this? Who else? There must be someone else asking this question in the world. So I was seeking out and contacting anyone that was asking questions or known as someone who was on this disciple-making journey. A friend gave me a copy of Moody Monthly magazine here in Melbourne, and it had an article in there about this guy, Dan Spader, who was now running youth pastor training at Moody. And he was running these things called strategy seminars, Jesus strategy seminars. I read about it and I thought, that's kind of got a familiar ring to what we're doing. Let's contact this guy. So we sent you a fax, I think it was, and you got this fax from some guys in Australia. And we said, We've read about what you're doing. We're on a disciple-making journey with leaders. Can we come and spend some time with you? And you perhaps somewhat politely replied, oh, sure, if you're in America, how likely is that? Drop by. So I and a good friend, colleague, we dropped by. We came and spent some time with you. And we stayed in your basement, slept there, and we attended one of these conferences for youth pastors that you were running at Moody. And that was the beginning of our connection. What's your recollection of that time? Well, you know, Bill, it's kind of similar. I don't have tons of recollection. I think my biggest memory, just knowing, well, number one, trying to understand you, I had to take some time. <laughs> to understand this Aussie abuse of the English language or the proper (laughs) use, however you're looking at it. But I I remember we just kind of hit it off. We just bonded. We had the same heart. We had the same passion. Up at this time, God had grown our youth ministry that it was really multiplying. And the doors had opened at Moody Bible Institute Mm -hmm. for me to come and train youth pastors. And that was a whole supernatural event in and of itself. And we were just getting started. We were building model ministries in Chicago because I did not want to expand until we had some functioning models beyond just our youth ministry. And then you got connected to us and we began to talk and share in a similar heart, similar passion, Uh, similar connections with different people. Probably the one gifting that God gave me, I'm not a super talented guy, is that I can think and strategize and analyze. And I'd probably put together the life of Christ in a transferable way with definitely phases of building a movement. You saw that and boy, you just said, oh, that's so right. And together we just learn from each other. Yeah. It's a beautiful way that mutual accountability happens between leaders. 
So it's not so much an authoritarian model. It's not even an organizational model. Right. It's not a not a legal model. It's not contractual, although there may be those things involved. But it's first and foremost a relational model and saying, I'm committed to you. You're committed to me. Let's walk this journey together and permission to speak into each other's ministries and hold each other accountable. And that actually started with my connection with you. And then I know there was others. There was other guys that came into the journey who we'll no doubt have on our podcast into the future. And then there was a point in time when it was bigger than Sun Life, bigger than our ministry in Australia, bigger than one or two others. And we decided, you know what, perhaps this needs to become a coalition, an alliance of leaders that can do this mutual accountability on the disciple-making model of Jesus on a global scale. Do you remember that occasion? When oh, I do. I remember it very well. It was, and again, I come back to the life of Christ. Early on, I remember the first one I went to Moody, I says, this cannot be just a curriculum or training. It has yeah. to be a movement. And this was before anybody was talking movement, but I knew that's what Jesus did. He built a yeah. movement called the church. It was a yeah. relationally driven movement. And then when we began to get more and more guys international, yourself and Mark Edwards in Costa Rica and John Abrams in Africa and Dave Patty in Eastern Europe, we yeah. began to say, we've got to come back together every year and we got to learn from each other because every culture is different. We're all going deeper in Jesus. Jesus is a very deep well. None of us have the corner on the life of Christ. We've got to learn from each other. We've got to be a team of men that humbly submit to each other and learn from each other what's working for you, what are best practices. And we called that gathering, and I don't even know where it came from, Global Youth Initiative initially, but we came together for three days at a great expense to fly yeah. to the US or to Europe or wherever great expense to come together to learn from each other. And that just kept building and deepening that movement. Yeah. And it was not a conference. It was really no. a retreat with key yeah. leaders of leaders who gathered. And we are the discipline of putting this time aside to be here, to pray together, to laugh together, to learn together and to share what are you learning? What are the big questions? And it was always a well of refreshment. It was really a really a rich time yeah. because GYI or Global Youth Initiative has recently been renamed Concentric, but that rich learning community of leaders has really enriched our investment in leaders in Australia, and I know it has done also across the world. So that's been very, very rich. What's your reflection, Dan, on the development, just a little more on that relational component? Because when we look at Jesus' life and ministry, it was relationally driven. Mm -hmm. It's more organic than organizational, although there was structure. The, the way things developed was life on life, investing in people who invest in people. What's your reflection on the development and the value of relational commitment between leaders in building disciple-making across a broader scope than just the local? There's several levels to that in my mind. Like now, whenever we go into a country, we know that we tell our person that goes into a nation or country to create a movement of multiplication that you have experience, you've got training, but you have to go build multiple 
disciple-making ministries. You have to have more than a model because in America, we tend to grow mega churches and everybody tries to be like that mega church. Same structure building, same song. That's not a movement. When you can replicate the life of Christ in multiple models, smaller churches, yeah. middle-sized churches, larger churches, and then get those leaders together and everybody share best practices. Everybody shares, here's what we're learning. Here's what yeah. works in our context. Oh, that would never work in our context. And in the course of doing that, Bill, that was the beauty of coming together in that I found out some of the material that I had put together in the initial writing of our Sun Life strategy was very North American. Mm. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, but we had this whole thing, build a healthy group image. Yeah. Well, that yeah. was so North American. That did not translate in Africa. That did not yeah. translate. And I realized my exegesis of the life of Christ, I saw it through the lens of my North American culture. But yeah. when we all got together and talked about that, we began to say, there's some truth in that, but here's how we can better transfer the life of Christ. And that was the beauty of multiple ministries coming together to say, what are you learning? Here's what I'm learning. Yeah. And it, it, I think it was genuine humility there, Bill, in that there's no one of us says, I've got it all together. You're lucky to have me. I'm going to teach you this stuff. It was a shared learning with a deep desire, all of us to go deeper into the life of Christ. Yeah, I certainly agree with that. And it's interesting that one of the things that has always sparked me there is both the deep humility of co-learners Yes, when we sit around a table together and the teacher is the word, the teacher yes. isn't the other person, and we spur each other on in our learning and our questions. Yeah. So when you get multiple lenses of different leaders from different denominations, different organizations, different nationalities together, all looking at the life of Christ, Together, actually, we have eyes that can see it stripped away from its cultural baggage, and we can see the purity of, well, what were the principles Jesus modeled, and then how would they apply in my context? Yes. Well, and I think one of the big things we learned in this, Bill, and you may remember some of these meetings, in the Christian community, nobody will argue, oh, yeah, we want to do what Jesus did, too. That's just a given. <laughs> But here's what we learned. There's a major DNA difference between those who understand the life of Christ developmentally mm. versus those who say, oh, yeah, we teach Jesus too. There's an organization that does a Jesus-style strategy seminar. Mm. But it is so different than our DNA because they yeah. start off by saying, and it grew out of a mega denomination, they said the first thing that you got to do is you got to build leaders. And so the whole strategy, uh, and I don't say this critically, they're very, very life mm -hmm. of Christ focused, but they don't understand Jesus developmentally because Jesus did not develop leaders until two and a half years into it. They grew yep. out of his ministry. They were saying, start with leaders yep. and then you do what Jesus did. It's just <laughs> not the real Jesus because Jesus did not do that. And so to me, everybody in a Christian community talks Jesus, but, yeah. but there is a definitely a DNA that understands what I like to call the real Jesus that walked on this earth.
What did he do first year? What did he do second year? What did he do third year? What did he do fourth year? And why? It's good. You've often made a clear distinction, and we do the same thing here, between discipleship and disciple-making. And sometimes this speaks into this topic. Every church that is true to the word and is in some sense wanting to fulfill the Great Commission will be doing discipleship in some form or another. And there's whole sections in the Christian bookshops on discipleship. And it tends to kind of just get blurred. But how do you find it helpful to clarify the distinction for leaders between discipleship and disciple making as you see it coming out of the life of Christ? In 1850, there's a guy by the name of Charles Adams who took the phrase making disciples out of Matthew 28. And he did a real disservice to the Christian community. I don't think he meant to, but he said making disciples consists of two things. Uangalitsumai, the Greek word for evangelism, bringing Mm -hmm. people to Christ. And then he coined the word discipleship as what you do to grow people up in Christ. So you bring them to Christ, grow them up in Christ. And he began to write articles about the two, how evangelism differs from discipleship and discipleship differ from evangelism. Whole denominations began to say, oh, we're primarily about evangelism. Others said, no, we're primarily about discipleship. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, they had evangelism buildings and discipleship building. And, and it, a huge disservice— we would start training. At one point, we were training tens of thousands of leaders every year. And yeah. every time I'd say the word disciple-making, I saw that people were thinking discipleship, which meant deeper Bible studies, maybe use a little bit of Greek, you know, go yeah. deeper in the Word. It's what you do with believers to go deeper. And we just had to strongly, emphatically say, yeah. do away with the word discipleship if you can. I've never been able to get that. I struck it from our conversation. You won't find it in any of our books or manuals. Why? Because we're about making disciples or disciple making. And that involves the whole process of winning the lost, growing the new believers, equipping the workers, and sending out proven multipliers. That's what Jesus meant in the Great Commission. He didn't say, go and do discipleship. He said, go and make make disciples. disciples. Big, big difference. Huge difference. It's night and day difference. And I've tried so hard in America to get them to ban the word discipleship, but it's everywhere. (laughs) And and but that's what most people think of when you say disciple making or discipling. They think of discipleship, deeper Bible studies. This is where language really matters. So I keep going back to what does the text say? What did Jesus mean by the text? Yeah, brilliant. Dan, what is some of the biggest barriers you found? You've worked extensively across North America, and you've also had a lot of input in other countries and your experience in connecting with other key leaders around the globe. What do you think is some of the barriers for leaders in churches to make that shift from ministry or discipleship to disciple making in existing churches? What is it that they get stuck against? Where do they get blocked? I think we've been talking about some of them. Language really matters. We underestimate how important terminology is, being on the same page with our leaders and leadership team. You've got to spend a lot of time up front with your leaders, your leadership team, getting on the same page. Terms like disciple-making, not discipleship. 
understanding the disciple-making pathway, that there is a process of doing this, Mm -hmm. understanding how Jesus built a movement. That takes a lot of work. So a lot of churches get stuck there thinking everybody sees it the way they do. I think the second thing then is, and this is the hard part, you never want to change your church program until you begin to change the church's values toward disciple making. Mm. Ultimately, you got to get to programming structure change because yeah. the program structure has got to support the disciple making pathway. And so many churches are older and they have these wonderful programs, but they all are geared for believers rather than. Jesus was a genius at creating a structure that supported the values that accomplished the mission that God had given to him. So don't change your program until you change the values. Get your leaders on the same page, begin to build the life of Christ DNA, and then begin to address structural things that keep people from having time to make disciples because they're so busy going and doing good church stuff. Indeed. It doesn't sound just like cultural problem in one location. That seems to be a, just a typical problem. It's all over the world. Also, I know it's probably more than you want at this point, but one of the things I really see churches do, they don't define the end product well. Yeah. Covey says, begin with the end in mind. I just did a free disciple-making metrics download book on what's the disciple-making metrics that you need to use. How do you measure how you're making progress in making disciples. And so many churches have defined the end product of discipling as service, serving. That's a very critical component of growing believers, but it's not the end product. The end product is reproduction, and even more than that, it's multiplication. If you don't define the end product well, you'll never get there. Yeah, because everything we do will be evaluated consciously or unconsciously against what we implicitly think is our end product. Yes. It's like a guided missile. If you want to change where it's going to end, you have to change what's programmed in because it's always referencing that target in its mind and it just keeps on replicating what it's always done unless it's deliberately reset and it has to be reset Firstly, amongst leaders, and then they have to build the culture around that reset. Yes. And they've got to teach their people around it. They've got to change the narrative that they use, what they celebrate, what they profile, what takes up platform time. All those things have to reinforce. We now have a different end product that we're eating for. Yes. And we're not there yet, but we're evaluating how we're on course. And we're moving there. The beautiful thing about Jesus, you don't have to get it all right up front. Yeah. Jesus started with what he had and then moved his men there and said, I'm leaving now, and I'm going to stay with you through the Holy Spirit, but I'm leaving. So, guys, you know what it is now. Let's let's do it. Yeah, brilliant. Hey, Dan, you personally, you've been on the road for so long. Your energy is always amazing. Your investment in leaders, you have a sense of freshness. What is it that keeps you fresh? Keeps your vision sparking and motivated. Keeps you proactive in this disciple-making journey. I don't know. It's just, here's how I always explain it. I love the word. I love to pray for my disciples all over the globe, and I do for regularly. So that energizes me when I'm with guys like you. But 
Jesus is a deep well, and I mm. never tire of talking about Jesus. I tire of talking about how do you build an outreach and how do you develop a mm-hmm. well-tuned program and how do you, you know, communicate. Those things I tire, the how-tos, but I never tire of Jesus because every year I go deeper and deeper and deeper in the life of Jesus, and he's a deep, deep well. And that's the beauty of focusing on the life of Christ, the real Jesus, I call, because you never get tired of that because every year Jesus is fresher and fresher, and I love him more every year. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, programs will come and go and trends will come and go, but we just keep going deeper into the Lord. Yes. And it's exciting. What I'm dealing with lately is just how I'm going to rule and reign with Christ forever. And uh, <laughs> I, I could get in eschatology, but I won't here. But I, I just, I am so excited as I approach my 70th year, 50 years of full-time ministry of genuinely excited about the next phase of my life. And that's because Jesus is a deep well. He really yeah. is. Wonderful. My friend, so great to have you. I've been talking with Dan Spader, legend in terms of disciple making and mobilizing leaders. It's so great to have you with us, Dan. And we will have you back, I'm sure, for a future podcast where we can dig in on some of those topics that we've already touched on. But my friend, really appreciate you and we appreciate your investment in the Shift M to M wider tribe. And we're really glad that you could join us for Making the Shift. Well, Bill, and it's it's really my pleasure. You've been a dear, dear brother, and I love you dearly. You know that. And uh, we've been walking together for 30, 40 years. So we got a lot of stories we could tell about each other, but someday. (laughs) (laughs) That's why we have to get you back. I've got got some really good ones still to open up on. (laughs) Hey, great to have you with us, Dan. Thanks very much. And uh, until next time, God bless. joining us. We hope this episode has encouraged you to pursue disciple-making movements in your ministry context. Coming up next episode, Bill chats with Randall and Glenda Brown from the Salvation Army about how they're training disciple-making leaders using Shift M to M. To find out more, visit powderchange.org.au forward slash shift or find all of the Shift M to M links in the show notes. We'd really appreciate it if you could share, leave a review and follow our podcast as it helps more people find us. And so we really want to remind us all, let's not forget, it's never too late to start making the shift.